Welcome to the Near Future Navigator podcast, your practical guide to the effects of technology on society, business, law, and social change. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Near Future Navigator podcast and to the second half of my discussion of the issues of self-driving cars. In part one, I covered the cars themselves. I described the development of the technology that underpins the curve of self-drive to today and how that curve will continue to move towards autonomy in the near future. And then I described the economics that are driving that curve and the monetary reasons why all of the rideshare and car manufacturing companies are sinking many billions of dollars a year into developing autonomy. In this half, I want to look at the profound effects that autonomous transportation will have on our society. I want to look at the problems we need to solve so we can adopt self-drive vehicles responsibly, safely, and efficiently. And I especially hope I can identify opportunities for new business models, new ways of providing transportation to those who need it and cannot afford it, and to find ways to take advantage of the social and economic changes that self-drive will cause. This is going to be a big topic, and I'll be covering a lot of ground. So let's buckle in. It's going to be a wild ride. As I said in the first half of this discussion, I truly believe self-driving vehicles are both a very good thing and a necessary technology. The amount of lives that we can save, the suffering we can eliminate, the millions of hours and billions of dollars we can rescue from car accidents alone should compel us to adopt self-drive as soon as possible. And this means more than just developing the technology, because allowing autonomous cars onto our roads is a unique challenge. All of our legal and regulatory systems are set up for human decision-making, not machines. A significant percentage of our economy is based around the inefficiencies of human drivers. Our roads and cities are built assuming that humans will be the ones driving. The amount of work we need to do to make autonomous cars as useful as possible as soon as possible is downright frightening. And that is before we even begin to worry about the specter of artificial intelligence making life and death decisions for us. Because autonomous cars are really robots. Robots that we ride in. Robots in disguise. Transformers! <laughs> Transformers moment over. For now, given the topic, I can't promise that I won't go Starscream at some point. But I will do my best to warn you ahead of time. I want to start off this podcast by raising the big, possibly obvious, maybe counterintuitive question, when will we let cars drive themselves? After all the time that I spent arguing that they will drive themselves in the first half, it seems a little strange to break away and ask when we will let them actually do the thing they are going to do, but it is an important and deceptively difficult question. As of right now, the decision is in the hands of the National Traffic Highway Safety Administration under the Department of Transportation. To a lesser degree, there are also decisions that need to be made by state DMVs, but the primary question will be in the hands of the feds. Now, when you think about federal administrations and the DMV, forward thinking isn't usually the first thing to pop into your head. But to my great and surprised joy, there appears to be significant forward motion on dealing with the relationship between human drivers, automated driving tools, and the massive cooperative game of please don't kill me that is the American highway. Only a few days before I recorded this, the Department of Transportation and the NHTSA issued a 100-page plan for drive assist and autonomous vehicle adoption and regulation. In this document, there are tantalizing hints as to what will be required. 
but under all the planning language is a shocking lack of details, except for a very few narrow areas. Which is not an irresponsible or lazy move on their part. The paper itself is just a first step, and it calls for public comment on its content. Which is good. We need broad discussion of these issues. And if you have the time and inclination, I recommend reading the DOT paper and being part of the public comment process. Because the challenges in properly establishing self-drive are fundamentally different than the systems we have in place to try and manage driver safety. Testing whether a new seatbelt design is safer than existing seatbelts is easy. Trying to test an artificial intelligence system to see how it handles the complex and unforeseeable variables of real life is very much not. As for the question of when we will let cars drive themselves, it seems the NHTSA is relying primarily on car manufacturers' determination of the capability of their own self-drive tools, according to a five-point scale put out by the Society of Automotive Engineers. Now, I don't generally use this scale when talking about self-drive, as it's not really all that useful. But the NHTSA has made it part of their policy paper, so I will describe it quickly. The scale ranges from a 0 to a 5. 0 being no automation. Imagine a car with manual transmission and with no power steering. Level 1 is driver assistance. This is basic cruise control and limited lane keeping. Level 2 is partial automation your dynamic cruise control and steering packages. At level three, conditional automation, things start to get interesting. A car with automatic parking assist counts as a level three. So does Tesla's autopilot. The primary characteristic of a level three is that it is capable of driving itself under specific circumstances, but a human has to be ready to intervene at all times. A level four is high automation, or a vehicle capable of driving itself even if the driver fails to intervene. So instead of merely beeping at the driver to let them know something bad is about to happen, a level four has a backup plan for when it's faced with a problem and its driver doesn't take over. A level five is a car that has zero need for a driver, a fully autonomous vehicle. As I just said, the NHTSA is relying on the manufacturers to determine where their car falls on the spectrum which would make a lot of sense if the five-point scale had clearly defined edges between each level of autonomy. But the challenges of fitting AI drivers into a human-dominated highway system is going to require finer gradation, vastly more data, and objective verification. Which, to its credit, the DOT recognizes, but does not actually lay out much of a framework for. To see what I mean, let's look at one of the major elements of drive assist technologies that is addressed in the policy guidance statement. The question of driver complacency, or how do you keep drivers' attention on driving a car that isn't quite autonomous enough? The question of driver attention is an important one, as people seem to have a fundamental tendency to treat self-drive as way more capable than it is. It is far too easy to zone out while driving, and when your drive assist has been doing most of the work for the last hour, it is difficult to snap your attention back to the road when a dump truck full of grass clippings flips over in front of you. Think about it. Each new incremental stage of automation requires drivers to pay attention in different ways, and each different self-drive car model and year will have different capabilities. Watching for emergencies on a freeway while using autopilot is different from the same situation on side streets. Being ready to take over driving for a vehicle that passes out of a geographic area where it can operate at a level 4 or level 5, and has to drop down to a level 3, adds a whole other layer of complexity. 
The policy paper asks for car makers to build systems to both educate drivers to a vehicle's capability and also effectively alert drivers to problems the car cannot handle on its own. Now, the easy answer to this is the keep your hands on the wheel or I will beep at you and eventually shut off system that is common today. But as the technology improves and is both able and encouraged to take over more and more of the driving, the lines of when we need drivers to participate and when we want the car to function on its own and even overrule driver choices start to blur. And I'm going to say something horrible, so I apologize in advance. But the best source on information of where to draw those lines, at least for the next few years, will be car accidents. I don't want to downplay the tragedies that can and will occur when the combination of human and machine error causes an accident, especially when one of the biggest and first reasons we need autonomy in our cars is to avoid accidents. Until we have a truly robust way to objectively test all our AI drive systems in advance of being allowed on the road, Accidents will be the source of data that we will have to rely on most to determine how safe any particular technology is. Especially if we were relying on the car makers to determine where on the scale their cars fall. The NHTSA gets this. It's even in the policy paper. It contains a strongly worded demand for accident data and a slightly wistful request for near-miss data. Which is nice, assuming first that the information shared is anything more than the dead minimum necessary to show or imply that the car wasn't at fault, and second that the NHTSA is able to interpret that data and put it to use in creating measurements of safety. Which is another aspect of the report I want to talk about, and that is developing objective testing and certification for self-drive. Part of the policy paper indicates that research needs to be done on creating objective measurements, tests, and regulations for self-drive technologies on all levels. I am not in any way surprised that the objective tests and certifications don't yet exist and that more research needs to be done before any policies are set up around them. The complexity of the question we face in marking out when human and machine decision-making can and should take over for each other is, well, unprecedented. It's not like when drive through bank tellers were replaced with cash machines. This is a question of policy, safety, human lives, and human decision-making. I would love to spend hours talking to you about the differences between human and machine cognition and the problems that arise when people misunderstand those differences. I desperately want to dive into the differences between intelligence and consciousness and the absolute nightmare of moral programming something that shows up in the policy paper in a few short paragraphs called ethical decision-making. But those are so complex that they deserve full episodes of their own. Now, the current most common metric in a marketing and techie kind of way to discuss objective road safety of a drive assist or driverless system is the accidents per million mile driven metric, which is stupid. It is a great way of tracking the change over time in accidents and fatalities for human drivers on the levels of nations and decades but it is boneheaded and wrong for the question of push-button for autonomy for a number of simple reasons. First, a question of numbers. Autonomous cars are not going to be able to drive enough miles in aggregate to give us a reasonable picture of how safe they are. The accidents per million mile metric is great when you're starting with a total number of highway miles driven in the U.S. in any given year. In 2014, that was 3 million million. Three times a million times a million. But that metric is significantly less useful when the total number of miles any one autonomous technology has ever been driven is 1.3 million miles, and that took six years. The RAND Corporation came out with a report that flat out says it would take hundreds of millions of miles driven 
possibly hundreds of billions of miles driven, to give sufficient data for any kind of conclusion on the safety of vehicle autonomy. And that would be on each individual technology, not on driverless cars generally. If we want to build a useful objective test, we need data. I mentioned accidents and near misses earlier, but that's only part of the equation. Every second they are in operation, driverless cars generate a massive amount of data. The cameras, LiDAR scans, engine data, GPS, and more. Outside of a black box report for an accident or near miss, most of that data for real-world use isn't going to be saved or reported, at least not without incentives. It's not inconceivable that we could create subsidies or legislative penalties that would provide access to the data from self-drive. Now, there are practical problems to be overcome with that approach, from the cost to gather and archive data to guaranteeing the privacy rights of the owners, which isn't insignificant, but something that can be handled by existing bureaucracies. Now, the other issue is turning that raw data in huge quantities into useful information. If the NHTSA is going to use that data to make objective determinations on the safety and capability of any self-drive technology, it's going to need researchers and tools capable of interpreting that data in extremely large quantities. Now, there is an amusingly nerdy way that we can determine road safety of these vehicles, and it's right up my alley. And that is to have them play video games. And what game would you think perfect for driverless vehicle training and testing? Forza? Gran Turismo? Nope, it is Grand Theft Auto. I am not kidding. A team of researchers from Intel and Darmstadt University are using a version of Grand Theft Auto to train and test a machine learning... A team of researchers from Intel and Darmstadt University are using a version of Grand Theft Auto to train and test a machine learning algorithm for object recognition. Building up a more advanced version of this game to test the performance of actual vehicle AIs should not be significantly more difficult a task for an agency as large and as powerful as the Department of Transportation. And those simulations capable of testing driverless vehicle technologies might actually be able to give us enough high-value data to determine when and how to push that driverless button on the roads, as well as interpret the car crash data provided by car makers. These simulations become even more useful when we can base them on one-to-one -one representations of real-world road spaces using 3D scans of actual cities and freeways. Testing a driverless car on the streets of fictional Liberty City is one thing. Testing it on an actual map of Manhattan is another. Fortunately, it appears the NHTSA is at least willing to look into creating a larger and coherent testing system through creating simulations. The paper mentions combining real-world sensor data, simulated car travel on real-world 3D maps, and the possibility of VR environments. Now, trying to manage just the pure raw data would be difficult, but being able to recreate any real-world incident in a simulation makes it faster, more human-intuitive, and probably, in the long run, less expensive. If they really want to have fun with it and get a lot of data, they can release these simulations for crowdsourced research. Testing the car AIs against human players not only lets us know how well the AIs perform relative to us, but also gives the AI access to the novel and unexpected solutions to game situations that human players can come up with. Using the crowd to test Drive Assist programs in simulation lets us see how people adapt to low autonomy Drive Assist and can even give us examples of situations where the car needs to bring the driver back into the decision loop or to override the driver's decisions. 
and later on, maybe those simulations could also include moral and ethical dilemmas in which the players are forced to make choices with no clear right and wrong answer. Although, to be fair, gamers might not be the best source of solutions to the trolley problem. I would love to keep on that subject. It ties into the ethical programming topic I keep teasing, and the trolley problem reminds me of my intro to ethics class. But I do want to move on from the question of safety regulations and permissions to what happens after an accident occurs. And that means we have to talk briefly about the legal liability problem. If a self-driving car does fail and injures its passengers or a pedestrian or hits another car, we need to know who gets sued and how we determine the liability. I know, terrible and boring. But this is the first thing that every discussion involving lawyers on this subject turns to, and weirdly, in many cases, the only thing that ever gets discussed. And the one thing that every lawyer I have ever heard speak on this particular topic at least start from is the field of product liability. Which, on one hand, is great. It is a solid legal framework that we can use to talk about the legal responsibilities and liabilities of self-drive. All we have to do is treat a rapidly advancing form of artificial intelligence the same way we treat a defective toaster. Now, that sounds facetious, I know, but it's only partly facetious. Since we want to protect the lives and wealth of the population as a whole, and the best way to do that is to replace human drivers with robot ones as soon as possible, a system that protects the manufacturer unless they did something egregiously wrong isn't a bad thing. And it wouldn't be the only solution. We already have the vehicle insurance system in place for the injuries and damage caused by car accidents. And the insurance companies are absolutely dying for the rapid drop-off of payouts they will have to do when autonomy is the norm, while they can still maintain the mandatory carrying of insurance policies for all vehicles. Admittedly, the transportation-on-demand boom that comes along with full autonomy will cut into their profits long-term as individuals stop buying cars, but at least during the first few years of strong autonomy, the insurance companies will be making money hand over fist. So we'll certainly still exist long enough to cover the monetary losses associated with those few accidents caused by errors in self-drive. It's not a perfect solution, and the stronger protections of product liability will help keep the insurance companies from offloading their payment of claims onto the manufacturers. But consider this. A machine that makes life and death decisions for you might not best be covered by the weak regulation of product liability where your best recourse is the Consumer Products Board, a class action suit, or the problematic calculations of an insurance company's actuarial tables. We can rely on autonomous drive manufacturers' self-interest to avoid obvious enough corner-cutting that it might end their chances at the billion-dollar transportation market, but setting the precedent today that AI are mere products instead of intelligent and not conscious actors deeply worries me in the long run. We may need to treat autonomous vehicles as something slightly more than a product and slightly less than an employee. After all, the companies that design and build these machines will be dictating how they behave in any given circumstance. Another worry crops up where the servers that update and control those vehicles are in a different legal jurisdiction than where the accident occurs. Self-drive software companies offshoring their server farms to Jakarta to avoid liability questions and choice of law is neither that far-fetched nor that unsurprising. Now, lawyer fee generating questions over for the time being. Let's talk now about after we have pushed the autonomy button and what it means for us to live in a world with a rapidly growing supply of driverless cars. The first few years of vehicle autonomy are going to be strange ones. We are going to have fully autonomous cars, lower intelligence drive assist, 
and completely unconnected human drivers on our roads all at the same time. For the most part, it will be a gradual replacement as the saturation of automated vehicles climbs up until the late adopters finally jump ship to spending the majority of their travel time in robot cars. This means that all of the wonderful speed and efficiency benefits of automation will be choked out by the limitations of the human drivers around them. We could just throw our hands up in the air and let nature take its course, but the money interests behind automation are unlikely to give up on the extra dollars they can squeeze from their robot car investments. The relative benefits of automation on surface streets is low, and the potential solutions to the problem of human and robot driver coexistence in the cities are too expensive. This leaves one potential battleground for the available road space, and I think that battleground will be the freeways. The benefits of speed and efficiency for robot cars at freeway speeds and freeway distances are just too great to let them be hobbled by the human drivers. I think only a few years after the first automated cars capable of freeway transit hit the road, the states will begin to dedicate the left lanes of the freeways to automated cars only. Carpool lanes are a joke. Sure, people are used to carpool lanes. But a carpool driven by a person isn't significantly more efficient than any other car on the road. And you and I both know that the carpool lanes aren't really about carpooling. Their existence doesn't encourage more people in fewer cars. Carpool lanes are populated mostly by the people you would have driven with anyway. But turning those lanes over to automated cars, that's when you really start speeding up transportation. Now, I will come back to the efficiency question in a bit, but we really should put these ideas on a more concrete footing. Think about our transportation system. It's based on scarcities and costs the availability of transportation sources, and the whims of individuals. We move people and goods around as best we can, without very much in the way of large-scale data management or optimization. Transportation sources are dependent on drivers, and as a result, the vast majority of our vehicles sit idle for the majority of the time, in parking lots and garages. As I said way back in the beginning, even when we do move people around, most of the space in the car is wasted as well. We have to ask what our transportation will look like when it becomes more efficient when it's governed by massive-scale algorithms and big data, when traffic jams disappear, when the cost to move goods over short distances drops to barely above the fuel and maintenance cost per mile of the self-driving vehicle they move in. What will our commutes look like? What will shopping look like? What will our cities and suburbs look like when transportation costs drop below car ownership? All of this is highly speculative. I'm making predictions based on best guesses on the available information, and there's always the possibility that some completely out-of-the-blue change in the world or some new technology will upend my ideas. I also want to warn you right off the bat. I have a bit of a bias towards re-urbanization away from the expansion of suburbia, so I will be very cautious in talking about the effect of transportation on where people choose to live, especially in the face of nearly a hundred years of cultural values based on suburbia. With that in mind, I want to talk money numbers, so we have a baseline to work from. These are general numbers, and I pulled from several sources coming up with them, including a Business Insider article from 2014, from AAA, and from DAT Solutions Freight Rates Calculator. All of these numbers are pretty fudgy, but they give us at least a decent grasp of the relative costs. According to AAA, and assuming a newish car bought in 2015, it costs between 50 cents and 75 cents a mile to drive your own car. Their calculator assumes financing costs and a resale value depreciation, so the idea is that you bought that car with financing, you drove it for a while, and eventually you'll sell it used or trade it in. If you listen to part one of the podcast, you'll know that I think the resale value on cars is not going to hold steady as autonomy density increases, so think of those numbers what you will. 
Also remember that the majority of cars on the road are older, less efficient, more prone to failure, and have a lower resale value. It costs about $4 a mile to take an Uber or Lyft, but that first mile will always cost you around 5 Assuming you live in a place where taxis are dense enough to rely on, it costs slightly more, at about $4.50 a mile, particularly where you include the expected 20% tip. As for shipping goods, your van rate per mile is about $1.60. Generally, that works financially because you can pack a whole lot of goods into a truck or van and it's spread out over medium distances. Keeping those numbers in mind, let's look specifically at moving people around. Another callback to part one, Uber pays out 75% of the money it takes in to the drivers. You get rid of the drivers and pow, that four bucks a mile turns into a dollar per mile, or at least it would if Uber weren't already losing money at that price. And that dollar a mile doesn't include the cost to own and operate the vehicle in question. I don't really know where Uber's money is going, so I can't tell you exactly how much they will end up charging right away. And some of their costs will diminish once they no longer have to sink quite as much money into developing driverless cars. But let's assume they will need to charge per mile whatever their overhead is for running the app and paying back their associated investors, plus the cost to own and operate a fleet of autonomous cars. But wait, remember what I was talking about just a moment ago? The inefficiencies of transportation? Wasted space in moving cars? Cars parked the majority of the time and distribution of vehicles based on the whims of people? That fleet of Uber cars, and the privately owned cars that owners timeshare out to Uber when they aren't needed, don't suffer from this problem. It's roughly the same amount of dollars per mile to drive two or three people as it is to drive one. Packing the trunk with goods being delivered or filling passenger spaces when there's no one needing a ride lets Uber add even more value to those cars. The only time they ever need to sit idle is when they truly are not needed. This means that the rideshare companies have a number of different ways to maximize the value they extract from every mile driven. And if they want to expand their user base even further to get as much out of their investment in autonomy as possible, they will need to start pulling people away from car ownership and into their apps. And to do that, they will have to be more than just your late night ride and start being your everyday commute. Autonomous cars already have one way to do this, and that's eliminating the cost to park, which, if you live or work in a high-density area, can be as much or more than you pay to actually drive your car. But the rideshare companies really need to change the way transportation works if they want to get that everyday driver. I think in the short run, they'll start by cutting their prices and using the power of the networking systems to get multiple people in one car as it moves along a route, like sharing a taxi or riding in a very tiny bus. In the long run, if Uber wants to dominate personal transportation, they are going to need to think differently about transportation and vehicles and build autonomous cars that can not only transport a lot of people quickly and safely, but in a high degree of comfort. If you are a car owner today, it's cheaper and more convenient to use your car to travel the entire length of your trip. Trying to coordinate with other people or switching from your car to a bus or train only to try and find a taxi on the other end is an unmitigated pain. But autonomous cars that are being run by the rideshare companies through their big data analytics and optimization algorithms could make the multiple vehicle trip into something that could replace the normal commute or any longer distance trip. Over short distances, being picked up and transported in a small passenger car makes a lot of sense. But over longer distances involving significant freeway travel? Maybe not. Remember when I was talking about maximizing the efficiency and speed of autonomous vehicles a while ago? And how designated lanes for autonomous use is a better way to speed up freeway travel than carpool lanes? You can increase the speed and efficiency even more by doing what carpool lanes never really did, putting more people in fewer cars. Let me lay out what I think this will look like. 
a smaller one or two passenger vehicle picks you up from your home or office. It travels to a designated place near the freeway where you jump into a more luxurious and more private van or bus-like car, which makes its way onto the freeway to those designated lanes and eventually to an exit close to your destination. It drops you off to a waiting passenger vehicle for the last leg of your trip. There are two things you have to remember when I'm talking about these trips. The first is, an autonomous vehicle is free from most of the design restraints of building cars that people will be driving. You can do design things with a robot car that you just can't do with one that needs a driver's seat. And the second is the power of massive interconnected and data-driven resource allocation systems. Let's talk about those buses and van-like cars for a moment. When I say more luxurious and private, I mean virtually nothing like a bus or van today. Something much more like a first-class seat or a personal cabin on one of the better airlines. When you're talking about the corporations that will be providing the lion's share of personal transportation, or at least want to do this, the return on investment for luxury multiple-person transportation is much higher than the grim, impersonal spaces we associate with public transportation today, especially when you are at a point in your business model where you want to woo people away from the daily commute. Without steering wheels, small passenger cars will get more creature comforts, but a larger wheelbase and a higher profile not only offers more space to add luxuries at a lower cost investment, it also offers more storage space for packages and shipping. From a profit standpoint, the bigger the vehicle is, the more money the company running it will make. I also don't doubt that they will offer cut-rate transportation options with no frills when they start to replace even the low prices of municipal city buses, something that I will circle back to later. But the market they are going to want to take over is the business commuter and the vacation traveler, people who already may own a car, and who will need incentives to jump ship away from the personal freedom of a self-driving car that is dedicated solely to their needs. Because even if Uber can drive their fees below the 50 to 75 cents a mile, because even if Uber can drive their fees below the 50 to 75 cents a mile cost to drive, they still need to offer something to the consumer that offsets the loss of freedom that giving up your car would represent. The first way is what I just mentioned, offering comfort. Because there are a lot of people who would probably pay more than the cost to drive if it meant being transported in comfort and not having to have their hands on the wheel. Maybe even having that commute time be available to get work done on the way to work. Or the more likely outcome, playing Candy Crush or watching YouTube, which is absolutely what I would do. The second way is to make the multiple vehicle trip as seamless as possible. All the luxury in the world is going to be tarnished if you have to wait outside in the cold for it to show up, or the thing makes you late to work. This is where the power of large numbers, big data, and analytics come in. A sufficiently powerful data analytics system can manage the resources of a large fleet of autonomous cars, vans, and larger vehicles in such a way to provide exactly the travel experience that the public will want to pay for at a low enough cost to operate. Matching available vehicles against commuter demand and travel costs allows a big data system to minimize lag times around multiple vehicle trips that an unoptimized system just cannot. These systems will know exactly where each of their vehicles are at all times. They will have access to traffic flow patterns and travel time information from city infrastructure, weather and road surface information from Google Maps, and will be able to calculate on the fly where to move their cars to minimize wait times and maximize their dollars per mile driven. People will be able to schedule their commutes in advance, which allows the fleet algorithm to match points of departure with destinations and unexpected delays can be handled by changing the points where passenger vehicles meet with larger vehicles. The density of available cars can fluctuate according to factors from holidays to sporting events. A sufficiently robust AI fleet system will be able to anticipate needs and maximize efficiency. 
Which brings me to a non-commercial reason why making large multi-person vehicles the most common sight on the freeways is a good thing. And that's the cost of the freeways themselves. There is a constant push to spend more tax dollars to expand freeways to account for more traffic. It's bandied about that bigger freeways just encourage more drivers, but I'm not enough of a civil engineer or expert on driver habits to say with any certainty if this is true. What I can say is we can absolutely use the existing freeways more efficiently than we do. Removing human drivers from the system will do this just as a matter of course. Autonomous vehicles traveling faster, closer together, negotiating for lane changes, with fewer accidents and fewer human overreactions leading to slowdowns. But there will still be rush hour traffic if the same number of vehicles try to pack into the same roadways, even if the capabilities of self-driving vehicles diminish its impact. If we really want to maximize the value of the roads that we already have without spending more and more money on expanding them, finding ways to encourage people to leave those single occupancy cars for multiple passenger vehicles is going to be key. We could always rely on the business acumen of the rideshare companies to do this for us, but if we want to speed up the process, we should think hard about creating subsidies and tax incentives for companies that run these large vehicle passenger systems. If nothing else, those subsidies would be less expensive than sinking billions of dollars into projects that take half a decade to complete and make the traffic worse for the entire time they are under construction. It would even attract funding and support from environmental groups given how ecologically destructive freeways can be in ways ranging from runoff, groundwater problems, erosion, and even habitat destruction. See, now wasn't that fun? Let's leave people aside for a moment and think about another dollar value that I talked about the cost to move goods around, and what this means for how we get those goods into our hands. Just like everything else, how we shop for goods depends on scarcities. When you change those scarcities, how we shop for goods changes as well. And the availability and cost of shipping and transportation is one such scarcity. I'm sure you know this, but everything about retail has changed in the last 10 years due to the combination of internet purchase, and the speed at which you can get just about anything you want delivered to your home or business. Amazon has already carved out a massive and growing chunk of the I need this thing in a few days market when it comes to moving products around. If you don't need it in your hands today, you don't need to physically touch it or try on that thing before you buy it, or it's something that you don't mind returning if it's not exactly what you want, Amazon is the American master of putting it on your doorstep. They manage this apparent wizardry through giant semi-automated warehouses, insane volume, and bulk shipping. But there is a large class of goods that just don't work using that model. Small things that you need right away, want in small quantities, or are available within a short travel time. When you run out of milk in the fridge, it is vastly easier just to get into your car and drive to the store than it would be to try and schedule a delivery for it. And internet grocery shopping has been an investor's nightmare since the late 90s. But as transportation costs drop with the expansion of autonomous cars, more of those small-scale, short-distance deliveries become economically feasible. Point-to-point -point deliveries without relying on the economies of scale provided by delivery trucks. Creating a deliver-it-when-you-want-it distribution model. Here's what I mean. At the moment, that $1.60 a mile to move goods in a truck means if companies want to maximize their profit, they have to move a big pile of stuff around to different houses one at a time. You might get one or two deliveries from different delivery companies in a day, and also whatever junk mail and... Magazines. Really. People still read magazines. Who knew? And whatever the post office happens to limp over to your door six days out of seven. 
But imagine instead all of those autonomous cars just waiting for something to do in between rush hours. That is a lot of empty space and underutilized transportation scattered around. Whatever car with time to spare that finds itself near your neighborhood or city block could very easily be redirected into a little detour for you. It picks up that pizza, or the two or three things from the grocery store that you forgot to grab, or even that one size bigger socket head screwdriver that you really need right now. The people at the store will take your order from Amazon or Grubhub or whatever new delivery service app, they stamp a big highly visible label on your product, they stick it into the trunk of the car that just swung by, and away it goes. The car sends you a message as it pulls into your driveway. It waits for you to scan the barcode on your screen. It watches you through the cameras as you pick up the package, making sure you pick up your package and only your package. It shuts the door and away it goes. Cute, yes, I know. A questionable value proposition, well, yes. But this won't be a mode of shopping that leads the technology, but one that follows behind as a consequence of all those vehicles sitting around just waiting for someone to drop an extra dollar or two on not having to put on pants and drive to the store for a gallon of milk. This means business growth for companies that serve the expanding short-distance-right-now delivery market. Companies that come up with efficient storage and transportation add-ons to autonomous cars. Companies creating the supply-side architecture to allow stores to bundle small purchases quickly and efficiently, to label them and get them into the right vehicles. All of the software developers who will create the interface programs that will need to exist between store, vehicle, and customer in order to make those deliveries work. Eventually, an opportunity for the robotics and small package drone industries to expand into. Robot warehouse pickers and packers, small package carrying drones that fit into the trunks and back seats of cars, the manufacturers of secure delivery boxes for people's front porches, or recently unused driveways. Eventually, you won't even have to be home to accept delivery. Because cheap right now delivery doesn't just reflect a change in consumer habits. It's part of a long-term change in how retail functions and the value of the land space we devote to retail. Just like internet shopping has been overturning the relationship between stores and consumers for the last decade, cheap as free shipping in real time changes that relationship further. Store owners put their locations within driving distance of consumers, with all the stock arrayed in rows for customers to peruse. Amazon doesn't do this. Its value is tied to warehouses and efficient stacking of goods for packaging. Now, I'm not suggesting that your local grocery, toy, hallmark, or hardware store is going to poof into the ether. But the value of the land that they sit on and the way they manage their space will change. We won't need nearly as much space dedicated to the same stores just a few miles away from each other. There's a large amount of redundancy in common shopping locations. Think of your average commercial center anchored around a grocery store. What happens when the large grocery chains take advantage of low-cost right-now delivery and find they don't need a large retail location every five miles? Maybe instead of football field-sized grocery stores filled with every kind of food you could want, we may see the big chains investing in smaller specialty locations with better return on investment. A resurgence of green grocers and butcher shops for those few food items that you actually want to look at in person before buying. Even if they keep their number of locations the same, the loss of foot traffic diminishes the value of all those small retail and takeout restaurants that cluster around grocery stores. Or rather, it diminishes their value as places that people physically visit. Low-cost short-distance delivery will make it economical for more of those fast food restaurants to deliver. Service-based businesses will replace small retailers that depend on foot traffic and window shopping. 
Chain stores like Hallmark will consolidate locations, looking for places with extra stock storage and ease of access for delivery cars. We may even see a percentage of the suburban retail centers going the way of the indoor mall, leaving us with decisions as to what to do with the extra land space that they have freed up. Which brings us to another element of our transportation system that will be upended by vehicle autonomy. Something ubiquitous, something wasteful, and something wildly inefficient. The parking lot. Let's think about dedicated parking spaces and their cousins, the parking lot and parking structure. They are so much part of our lives that we barely even think about them anymore. Unless the experience is particularly terrible. Like during the holidays. Or at a surprising number of Starbucks. Parking lots dominate office parks and shopping centers. Roadside parking squeezes city streets and suburbs. Parking structures cost millions to build and maintain, increasing the cost to access entertainment in downtown areas. The cost of building sufficient parking that is accessible to residents, commuters, and shoppers alike drives up the cost of high-density urban development and can discourage developers from building in or improving on existing downtown areas. Just like cars, most of the parking we build sits vacant for a large chunk of the time. But this is a limitation of cars driven by people. They have to be accessible by people. We are limited in where we can put parking spaces if people are going to use them, which is essentially no more than a five-minute walk from home, office, or shops. This creates massive inefficiencies, huge expense for wildly redundant acres of asphalt. But as I have said before, autonomous cars don't need parking spaces, or rather, don't need parking spaces the same way that people do. There are times that spending the fuel or power to move autonomous vehicles around, just waiting for someone to use them, resulting in enough extra load on the freeways and streets caused by that extra travel, that it will be more efficient for the fleet algorithm to find parking spaces for its extra cars. And there will be people who own their own autonomous car and want specifically that car to wait for them somewhere in anticipation of their needs, rather than circle the block, or timeshare into a transportation fleet. Fortunately, these parking spaces do not have to be particularly near the places that people need to be. A five-minute drive compared to a five-minute walk. Or even farther, depending on need and location. As a thought experiment, I want you to think about one of those giant resort parking structures. The kind that's intended to support crowds like Disneyland at Christmas. Think of the way they are built to allow access for walking and driving. Now imagine instead a structure of that size built specifically for autonomous cars. And even better, a structure that has a parking and traffic management system that can communicate with cars and manage the complex tasks of packing in as many cars as possible while still allowing each car to exit and enter at need. Not unlike the more aggressive valet parking lots, with cars double and even triple parked, with the valets being the one to move vehicles about to allow blocked-in cars to exit. Except in this lot, the cars drive themselves, and the infrastructure dictates how. There would be no space needed for people to walk back and forth to their cars. Only such driving space is necessary to allow exit and ingress. While cars could negotiate with their neighbors to allow exit and entry, a parking structure communication and management system would allow for even greater control and efficiency, and would be a prototype for the kind of traffic management system cities could employ to get the most possible benefit from autonomous cars. Traffic lanes varying according to the number of cars on the road in real time. Stoplights and roundabouts eliminated as autonomous vehicles flow through gaps in the opposing traffic at speeds humans could not possibly match. MIT did a study on traffic flow systems without stoplights, demonstrating that AI-driven cars could actually do this. 
I personally would need the windshields to be dimmed before I could ride in a car that did this, because even though I am a technophile, I would not be able to control my urge to claw at the dashboard and flail about with my feet looking for the brakes. My fear aside, this is the kind of change that we can expect with self-drive. All of that expensive space in city centers repurposed from parking to other use. Bigger and more dense residential areas unshackled from the one or two parking space per unit requirements of current zoning regulation. Instead of giant blank black reflective parking lots surrounding shopping malls, more green spaces and parks. It will be less expensive to live in cities and less frustrating and isolated to live in suburbia. Before I wind up this podcast, I want to talk about the relationship between you, your car, and transportation on demand in a world of autonomous cars. Because these transportation as a service companies will end up with a lot of power over and a lot of information about individual people. As a reminder, I think there will be vastly more good than bad derived from these technologies. But we are generally too willing to give up control over personal information, too willing to trust organizations with poor transparency, and often too slow to fix imbalances in power. Consider the post office. Yes, it's hideously inefficient. It's uncompetitive with the other bulk carriers. But the reason it exists is because running mail out to small post offices isn't cost-effective. And up until recently, people absolutely needed access to the mail. Cutting off rural towns and poverty-stricken urban areas from communication and transportation of goods in the pursuit of maximized profit and return on investment costs us all as a community and gives lie to our national identity and patriotic slogans. This is the same reasoning that supports government requirements for subsidized internet access, directly in the face of business decisions like AT&T's attempt to exploit a legal loophole to deny SNAP beneficiaries their mandated discounted internet service. Smaller economically disadvantaged communities are already creating partnerships with Uber and Lyft to provide subsidized transportation for areas whose public transportation was cut due to a lack of funding. This represents the kind of deals we will need to start making in advance of autonomy treating transportation as a public good and a public need. The personal information we will be giving up as part of our interaction with massive data management system is at least mostly a good thing as well. Knowing who needs what transportation when helps make the system more efficient, less expensive, and more convenient. And yet, once it's been gathered, it passes out of the control of the individual into the hands of the businesses that gathered it. Being able to gather the data on millions of people's travel, habits, destinations, deliveries, and preferences is a powerful tool to shape people's lives. Having primary control over who gets to travel where, how fast they can go, and whose travel is more important is terrifying. Think about how internet providers have been trying to push back against internet neutrality. They can make more money by creating priority access and charging for it. Imagine what Uber could do without a kind of travel neutrality in place. If you want to go home from work at the end of the day, but your boss pays a premium price to take your ride from you, he could very well do that without a system in place that prohibits it. You want to get somewhere faster than anyone else? Would you be permitted to use microtransactions to pay autonomous cars to let yours pass? And here is something that I want all of us to think about. Really let this sink in. Do you want people able to pay extra so your car saves them instead of you in the case of a catastrophe? If disaster strikes and your two vehicles are in a situation that only one can avoid a crash, are you comfortable with the idea that somebody can outbid the value of your life? 
because an automated car could, in theory, make it possible for the people who design and own the transportation on demand system to make that decision for you. Spooky, no? But this is the kind of question we really need to be asking about these technologies as they emerge. AI-driven algorithms offer unparalleled reduction in human suffering, but they are just as prone to human bias as their programmers and designers. These are incredibly powerful tools, and they are in the hands of people who are beholden to boards of directors and investors, and not necessarily to the ideas of fairness, democracy, and the value of human life. It will be up to us to trust the technology, but prepare for its misuse. To plan for the kind of disruption in our economy that putting three and a half million truck drivers out of work will cause. To try and figure out how small towns are going to fund themselves when traffic stops no longer exist. And what the states will do with the money that they no longer have to spend on highway patrol and the DMV. One of those I will miss less than the other. I leave it to you to guess which. This has been the second half of my discussion of self-driving cars. Thank you for listening in, and I look forward to hearing your comments on the Facebook page. Stay tuned for the next episode, where I will be talking about a technology that is finally starting to live up to the promises they made all the way back in the 1990s. Augmented and virtual reality. It's not just a toy. It's nothing like Google Glass, and it has the power to change how we experience the world at the most fundamental level. I am Adam, and this has been the Near Future Navigator. And I can't decide if I want my robot car to have the voice of Optimus Prime, HAL 9000, or Kit from Knight Rider. Good night!